Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It's time for us to have an art attack. Art attack attack attack. Here's our fortnightly visual arts review segment. Ty Snaith joins me in the studio, which still feels like a novelty after so many months and weeks of phone conversation. So, a very good morning to you. Thank you. I feel like I'm I'm running like just running this morning. So apologies if I'm. Either speaking really fast or really slow. It'll be one or the, or the other. And I was thinking Ace might join me, but poor Ace. Hope he's okay. He's got a migraine, so. I am here and I have seen a really awesome show at Bus Projects, which, <clears throat> sorry, I haven't even had a chance to clean my throat. I literally ran into the studio. You have a sip of coffee. I will mention the fact that <laughs> Bus Projects has relocated. They're one of the kind of residents now at the new Collingwood Arts Precinct in Johnson Street in Collingwood. And Collingwood Yards, yeah, I think they're calling it. Collingwood Yards is its a new official name after it's kind of gone through a few different iterations. I had the pleasure of going to... I'd been to the launch at Collingwood Yards, which was fun, and then... Uh, just recently, I, uh, last Friday, Thursday and Friday, I was there for an exhibition presented by uh, the Centre for Projection Art, who are one of the other tenants there. A really lovely mix of oh. visual arts organisations, music organisations, like the Push have moved in there. It feels like it's uh, already a dynamic arts precinct. Yeah, it's getting there, Richard. It is getting there. But I tell you what it needs. It needs a cafe. Like it is, uh, I know that it's happening, but um, it's slightly, it's slightly soulless without a place to sit and kind of like you know digest your thoughts and have a coffee so i do I think, believe there's one opening this week yeah i, I think next it's week. very soon yeah and i think um there's like a record store that's opening a bar as well which i think what are they called licorice pie or something like that i can't remember anyway it's um it, it's happening yeah it's got a really lovely sort of courtyard and anyway bus is in there west space is also in there which i popped my head in and had a little look but i wanted to talk about the bus show today just because it's quite, got quite a lot going on it's curated by Catherine Genevieve Honey and Nina Mulhall. Um, Catherine has done an amazing job on this show. I, I spoke to Catherine. I haven't spoken to Nina, but Catherine was in there yesterday. And um, it is really the type of show that I feel like we all need right now. And I definitely needed it yesterday. It, I don't know about you, but the moon or something created some really crazy energy out there yesterday. There was so much road rage and footpath rage. And I was feeling a little bit frayed yesterday. And I went into the space. And I mean, the title of the show, Notions of Care, really does reflect what the show is about. Um, first of all, I noticed that they had carpeted the space. So usually it's a floorboarded you know, or, you know, concrete floor. And there are panels of carpet which immediately make you feel like you're going into, I guess, a calming domestic space. Uh, and the smell, I I thought, oh, maybe it's some fancy hand sanitizer. <laughs> but then I thought, no, it's actually more than that. And there was this really beautiful smell of kind of um, a warm forest, it smelled like. That's, that's what I kept thinking, like a kind of a forest with sunshine on it. And actually, it was... Uh, part of the work of Katie West where she's stuffed 
or her and Catherine, I think, stuffed these big floor pillows full of fresh eucalyptus leaves at the start of the show. And then slowly they've kind of crisped up and let off this amazing aroma. And it's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a lovely uh, addition to uh, our senses when people consider the olfactory as part of an exhibition. And I've certainly I've been to spaces where um, uh, an aroma artist has been commissioned to make a particular scent for a show or something like that. Mm. Perth Festival for several years running uh, commissioned a particular scent each year, which would be uh, used in uh, in oils or in burners mm. and so forth. And it's really powerful. Because it, it really is, isn't mm. it? The, because... Our visual senses are one thing, but smell can be such a rich trigger and it helps us create uh, an incredibly rich atmosphere for a show as well. Yeah, and I think it sort of attunes you a little bit. Like it makes you sort of go, oh, what's going on here? What what am I looking at? Because I feel like so often we can walk into a show and just kind of stroll around or quickly take some photos on our phone and then go or we're you know, running late for something, whatever. But it actually made me want to stay. There were lots of things about the show that made me want to stay. So it's a group of artists brought together by Catherine and Nina. Um, the artists are Kate Tucker, Katie West, Polly Stanton, Irene Bing and Renee Coles. They were a collaboration at the start, a performance, and Anna Dunnell. Oh, no, sorry, Renee Coles and Anna Dunnell are a collaboration. So Irene Bing did a performance at the start, and Renee Coles and Anna Dunnell, uh, who call themselves Snapcat, that's their pseudonym, they did this beautiful project, and maybe I'll start by talking about that one, where they sort of were exploring the idea of pockets for women because, I mean, I'm sure you understand there's a dilemma. I am across the pockets issue, yeah. the fact that so, so many women's clothes are not designed with pockets, or if they are, the pockets are just fake. They're, they're fake, <laughs> which boggles my mind. Why go yeah. all that effort? Well, there's a history behind the pockets that's quite, or the, shall I say, the lack of pockets that's quite beautiful, and I didn't know this, but really, like hundreds of years ago, when there really were no pockets, where it was just skirts and no pockets, women used to have these extra pockets un- that were on a little sort of belt that hung un- under their underclothes that were their little secret pockets, like little pouches. And Anna's been researching this concept and, and they were these beautiful kind of, I don't know what the word is and it's not right in front of me, but it, they were sort of darned, I'm thinking darned, they were like little woven crocheted little bags, like little sort of dilly bags almost. Um, that they would have a drawstring and you could put your precious little things in there that you had to carry around. And so Anna and Renee have taken this concept and it is such a beautiful sort of, that's so, what is that? It's so sort of private or intimate, that that idea of them hanging against your body and having little tiny special jewels in them. And so what the two artists did for the show is they, they worked with all the other artists in the group to, they asked them for a precious object, basically, that was very precious to them. And then they knitted them this little bag and they're hanging in the space. And it's just such a sort of tender gesture and and quite a little quiet one you know well as you say that idea of keeping something close to the body is so intimate in and of itself Mm. Uh, and knowing that somebody else is perhaps carrying something close perhaps literally Mm. whether it's close to to their heart or elsewhere on Mm. the person that idea of an entrusted secret Mm. that you know of and they know of but Nobody else does. Yeah, and it made me think about the lack of pockets thing differently because maybe women just always had these better pockets, like their sort of evolved pockets. (laughs) 
anyway, Anna and Anna and Renee have really sort of brought this into the open and they've written, uh, there's a beautiful piece. If you go into the show, there's a really um, great catalogue essay put together by Catherine and there is an amazing piece at the end of it written by Anna herself that I highly recommend. It's one of the best essays I've read in a long time. Um, but each of the artists in the show talked about their object and what it meant to them too in the piece of writing. So it's quite a nice cross-pollination um, of the artists in the show working together, which you rarely get in a curated show. It's often sort of this quickly put together thing that, you know, loosely ties to a concept. But I really feel like with this notions of care, Catherine's really kind of looked at how they cross-pollinate and how, you know, we can really spend a bit more time if we want to, you know. We are all arts workers and art is an act of care in a way. Well, can it can be. You know? One of the things that strikes me as intriguing about this exhibition, I think it, it was seeded or first developed back in 2019. So they've had plenty of time to actually discuss ideas, develop, and after the rigour of last year and the challenges mm-hmm. of last year, to then be able to present an outcome which, as you say, is about care, is about the cultivation of care mm. and, and mutual support, emotional support, which is one of the things that we all provided for one another last year. Yeah, and I think that's that's very true. Like, I think emotional support, support is at the front of our minds. But there's, there's also, I know a lot of people that have sort of either, you know, given up their practice or put their practice on hold because actually care is more important to them, right? now so it was interesting to sort of see it framed in that way and some of the writing really reflects that too and then it looks at other aspects of care like Polly Stanton's work in the show I found really affecting actually it's um Polly Stanton has this really interesting practice that that moves across sort of video sound and and I guess um written written word as well so she spent some time out in the Mallee and I think she goes and sort of investigates spaces or places of wilderness that maybe have an interesting history and this this video sort of looks at how the the Mallee or this part of where she was was sort of scarred um, in the past and how there were these sort of mine shafts and she's written this beautiful text um, that she speak. or she actually has an actress speak over the top of the video about the scarring of the place and the sort of this really gentle, it's a very gentle kind of narrative but the, the video is really haunting and um, she's very skilled at capturing like really minute sort of um, the movement of trees or the sound that they evoke. But then she reiterates that in the text as well by describing those sounds and that scarring. And um, I just think at this time as well, like care for country is a really um, topical, important thing. And I think at the moment we're at a bit of a t- tipping point where we could either choose to care for country now and preserve it or we're really like just about to fuck it up, you know, or if not, we already are. So I feel like Polly Stanton's inclusion in the in the show is really um, important, and I spent quite a lot of time with that work, just thinking about how care for ourselves is one thing and important, but actually care for the place around us and and this beautiful place that we live and um, respect for First Nation people that have been caring for country for thousands of years and how we could how we might learn from that and learn from the past. Uh, and I thought that that work. Just really, it really hit me actually. Like I usually, I don't spend much time with video work. I'm, I've got a bit of ADHD when it comes to video pieces, but I really watched it all the way to the end, and then I wanted to see the start of it. So, I think if you go and see this show, um, make sure you have like some time that you can spend quietly. You can turn your phone off, uh, and I think, yeah, I think it would do you know, do it justice to just spend some quiet, nice time here where you can actually give your brain a little bit of space to think about what the issues are. Um, And another work in the show that I really 
loved was uh, Kate Tucker's works, which you can't miss as you walk in. I mean, I think we've talked about Kate Tucker before on the radio. This is where I need Ace because he's always good at remembering exactly when that was and what we said. Um, But Kate Tucker's work has evolved over the years from a painting practice kind of into this more sculptural, three-dimensional practice. And so they're paintings, but they're propped up on these sculptural supports that she builds that are ceramic. And they're quite rudimentary and rough, but they're also very complex, if that makes sense. So they're made out of a sort of stoneware, um, gritty clay, the the bases. But when you look at them, they're actually quite complex in terms of their um, their shapes. Uh, and then they're just like little stands that the paintings are propped on top of. And the paintings are different shapes. But what it really says to me straight away, as soon as I looked at it, is this analogy for support or this kind of metaphor of support. And I think in the arts, often we see the the finished veneer or the product of a slick oil painting that's hung on a wall, right? And often you don't even think about the artist hand that made that. I mean, I do, but not everyone does. They think of this as a product that might accrue value. It might be traded. It might be hung in someone's fancy house. It might be photographed for a magazine, you know. Or at least you think about the aesthetic of it, but yeah. you don't think about the process of the making. You don't think about what's behind it. And I do think about it a lot. And lately I've been even speaking to artists and recording that conversation about what's behind it. What is the life of an artist? What is the that energy that you put into this work and why do we do that? You know, what is that is a, a form of care in itself. Like for an artist to actually choose to have a practice where they pour all this time and energy and money and everything into it to create this beautiful object. But I think what Kate's works are doing are really um, trying to make evident that support, that big, weighty, chunky support is, is a big part of it. And um, these works do it really abstractly so it's a it's a form of abstract language really where she's pointing out attention to the fact that this support now is no longer invisible that actually you know working as a carer or working as a um, you know mothering is a job parenting is a job and actually we have to juggle these jobs and sometimes it's quite a good idea to bring them into the forefront and and look at them you know rather than to hide them away and I think with Kate's work it really starts to make you think about the supports in our lives and how important they are. If you've just tuned in, uh, Ty is talking about an exhibition currently showing at Bus Project, now located at 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood, inside the new Collingwood Yards precinct. Uh, The exhibition is called Notions of Care, and it's running through until the 22nd of May. And as noted on the website, uh, the... uh, The exhibition is, to quote, through uh, the use of different material and gestural propositions, the exhibition welcomes a personal and intimate reflection of care connected to the body and the land. Each work grounds the audience to reflect upon care for themselves, others and the environment. Mm. And it's really that simple, but it seemed, I mean, when I went into the show, I thought, oh... This seems a bit basic, but, you know, on the concept. But then when I went in, actually something quite visceral and emotional can happen, I think. Um, And I think Catherine has and the artists have managed to elevate that, you know, idea of just care to this quite an encompassing, you know, what's the word I'm thinking of? Not womb-like, but um, cocooning type of um, feeling. And cocooning is a really interesting word to choose because Mm. it implies that instead of hiding away, it's a pause in which to 
regrow. Mm, yeah. Uh, because something else, something new will come out of that cocooning process. Yeah, and to, and it really and to regenerate and yeah, I think those ideas of regrowth, regeneration, um, time and in- introspection are really clear in this work and it sort of makes it clear that in order to be um, agents of change or political artists in ourselves, we do have to take time and look after each other and look after ourselves and look after the earth. And I think it's just reiterated through the whole show, but also through the essays. And like I said earlier, that essay at the end, which is by Anna Dunnell, uh, and it's called Never, A Little of the Time, Some of the Time, Most of the Time, Always. And it is actually one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've written in a long time. So I highly Great. urge you to... I haven't written it. No, read. Did I say written? Yeah, no, read. I've read in a long time. So congratulations, Anna, and pick up a copy of the beautiful um, uh, catalogue and have a read on the tram home or something, but go check it out. Notions of Care is curated by Catherine Honey and Nina Mulhull and is showing until the 22nd of May at Bus Projects, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood. Jump online, busprojects.org.au. And while you're there, make sure you go up stairs to level one to West Space where there is a Stephen Ryle show that is just about to finish um, and that's great as well and also Arts Projects have a gallery there now too so it really it's good that they've got three um, galleries in there because it makes it sort of worthwhile not that we only go to places to look at art Richard but you might have a friend to visit in the studios but it is good to see three artist run spaces in one go and Collingwood Yards is the new Melbourne Arts Precinct at 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood, uh, right next door to the Tote. Uh, the place has been shut down and hidden away from view for a long time. There's now been a new entrance kind of punched through the building to open up the courtyard, to open up the space and make it more visible to passers-by. It's still coming to life, uh, but it's such a fascinating and important addition to Melbourne's kind of cultural world. So Yeah, and it needs our support to keep going, so go and support get involved. There's a great bookshop there too, Euro Books, which is a Melbourne-based publisher. Um, They're fantastic. There's a record store there as well, cafes and bars coming. Social Studio is fantastic as well. So it's got a good bunch of people. We just need to support it with our feet. So yeah, go and say hi. Uh, And for more info, just go to collingwoodyards.org and as we said, busprojects.org.au for more information about the exhibition Notions of Care that Ty was discussing in detail. Thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. We'll catch you in a Time. See ya. Midsummer Festival is in full swing. Midsummer being Melbourne's queer cultural festival. Queer means much more than just gay and lesbian. And a play that is premiering at Theatre Works for Midsummer, The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, brings the trans experience uh, onto the stage, but reimagines Christ as a transgendered woman. Uh, it's created controversy and joy around the world, uh, including, uh, I suspect, the uh, uh, a little bit of anger from some more conservative quarters, but also some passion and delight as well. Joining us on the line to uh, talk to us more about the work is actor... Kristen Smythe, welcome. Good morning. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Tell us more about the play. I mean, I know it kind of uh, that it what it premiered at, uh, in a tiny little Glasgow theatre back in two thousand and nine, <laughs> and since then it's kind of rippled around the world. Joe Clifford is the writer and uh, and performer, and she um, she put it on in Scotland, and uh, they had more people outside protesting than people in the audience, and all the ones outside hadn't seen it. 
And uh, so they were protesting about an idea, and I thought it was interesting if the idea is that somebody can come from, you know, from heaven and they can come and be amongst us and they can hold us and encourage us to seek love and decency and humanity, then why would they be protesting against that? It was a very strange uh, contradiction of ideas, but it's done amazingly well around the world. And now it's here in Australia the first time. What do you think it is about the idea of uh, presenting Jesus Christ as a trans woman that has so confronted and shocked people? Because, I mean, at the heart of the, Christ- the Christian kind of gospel, I'm not religious myself, but the notion that, that God is love uh, seems such a central, fundamental idea, which means that that love should extend to everybody. And yet some people are furious and up in arms that at the, the, the playwright suggestion that Christ could be transgender and female. It's almost kind of like two shocks simultaneously. How dare we? You know, it's this, I think this is sort of this cascade of um, civil society changing and, and uh, softening and thawing, let's use that word. Um, you know, the, the idea that Jesus should be a white male um, is very much, let's call it a patriarchal structure. And that, that sense of how society is structured and formed has been has been moving sometimes quickly but most often slowly over the last few decades and right now we're in the middle of one of the most extraordinary uh, developments across the world really in terms of social change so this is really just a, a continuation of a theme that's been that's been percolating for quite a while now i mean i think you know the idea. There was a there was an example recently where the, the Latham Bill into the transgender awareness in schools, and the idea that we should be teaching children to be more sympathetic and open and aware to ideas, which I would encourage all of us to embrace. And a beautiful uh, witness statement from Teddy Cook, who's a public health person and and trans and. It, it just pulled on everybody's heartstrings. And that's what this this play is about. It's saying, why can't we just open our hearts to the possibility that the world might not be quite as straightforward as we look at it normally, um, which, I, which I think is an incredibly healthy place to be. As far as I'm aware, I think the opening line of the play that, uh, that you deliver as Christ is, uh, whatever they say, whatever they do, they cannot stop the change that is coming. Uh, which is change a, is coming, uh, which is in itself a beautiful kind of phrase because it speaks to us on on several levels. Yes, it talks um, historically about the radical ideas that uh, Christianity embodied in its earliest years. That notion of mm. embracing the outsider, of rejecting violence, of of love yeah. and compassion. But it also, as you, yeah. as you say, speaks to the changes that we are witnessing now, which some people clearly find very frightening. The idea that gender uh, is not as fixed and determined and binary as they grew up believing it was. I know. There's a beautiful moment that Joe wrote where she calls to all of the trans groups and communities around the world and she says we are the Hijra from India and the Kathoi from Thailand and the warrior from Indonesia and the Bisu from the archipelago and the Safafine from Samoa and she goes on and on listing all of the first peoples and their and their trans sisters and brothers and sisters and what struck me doing some research into this was say in Africa where 
you know, empirical forces came and changed and got rid of all of the trans communities that were there and had been there for so many centuries. And, you know, dare I say, my, uh, my, my ancestors back in London, they probably would have sent a few on some of those missions and they, and they tried to stamp them out. You know, it just, it was not to be accepted. And uh, there's a beautiful moment where we, where we recall the story of the father who had two sons, but then chose changed it and says, and the younger son came to know she was his daughter and did not know what to do. And in the end, she went to her father and asked for forgiveness. And I thought, oh... You know, that was my story. My story was that I came out to my, my family and my mother was not happy. She said, I think you're committing suicide. You know, we've had to repair that for two years we didn't speak. And these, these things happen. These things happen where we get ostracised within our own family, let alone within society. How important is it for you uh, as a trans woman to be cast in this role, to have the opportunity to present this acclaimed piece of drama? on Melbourne stages? It's an absolute gift. I, I kind of say, Kitan Petowski is our director, and, and he would kill me if I didn't say that shows are selling out and that you can get half-price tickets for tomorrow's preview show. Um, but he, he asked me about a year ago if I would just have a read. He, um, he, he knew me from we were both in VCA together, and he said, you know, I really wanted to, to ask you to, to look at a few things, and I've just got this play. So I read it, and, and I'm... I'm a writer. This is my first performance. I thought I would go hard, you know, a monologue for 54 minutes in the round um, and taking on an issue as, as, as incredible as this. And uh, so Kitan asked me to read the play. I read the play. And then he asked me to read the play out loud, which I did. And then he said, hmm, do you think you consider, I don't know, putting this on? And I thought he meant I would be putting it on and reading it as if it was a text. <laughs> Here I am, 24 hours or so away from having blocked and learned um, 4,727 words. <laughs> I've counted them. Given the, then that you uh, you consider yourself a writer, not an actor, how challenging is this emotionally to take on as a work? Because not only is there the the I don't know the the fear of stepping out on stage with everybody at theatre work sitting around you in the the glass house COVID safe environment that they've created, sitting and watching you, but you have to presumably draw deep on your own lived experience to embody the emotions that the the role calls for while also remembering all yeah. of those bloody words. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 I don't know which one of those is the really hardest part. They will all be really difficult. But there's, I think what I, what I remember most of all is there's something extraordinary about being able to show this story and imagine... There might be someone in that audience who is curious and who is watching and who sees this um, six-foot-one and not, not the thinnest of humans. Um, and, you know, for a long time I was worried, do I pass? Can I possibly um, be trans-female and not allow myself that, that, that inkling, that, that notion to come true? And I think that being able to show that any of us can be our true and authentic selves that is the thing that I hold on to when I start to... Like, last Saturday, we were performing at the Midsummer Showcase, and it was my only second time of being on a stage, and the light bulb, the lights went, you know, pop, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't see the audience. That was new information. And then I couldn't hear them because it's such a beautiful, spiritual, quiet moment delivering this text. And for a second, I thought, are they still there? <laughs> 
<laughs> I think knowing that there may be someone there who who could be who could be moved and uplifted by this. I mean, in an ideal world, the whole audience will have that feeling, and they may well do because it's a beautiful piece. But the idea that there's somebody there who could be seeing this for the first time, walk away thinking that could I could do, I could be trans, I could be non-binary. That maybe that is my maybe that's what's been bugging me for all my life, and you know that's that is a gift. The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, which is uh, an exploration of a transgender Christ uh, and a celebration of the, I guess, the the biblical, certainly the New Testament uh, kind of idea of love and compassion, uh, is performing, sorry, is being performed at Theatre Works as part of Midsummer Festival. Uh, The show itself is running from uh, tomorrow, the 30th of April, through until the 8th of May, 730 p.m. Tuesdays to Saturdays, 5 p.m. on Sundays. TheatreWorks COVID safe booking uh, requires you to book a booth for two to three people or a booth uh, for four to six people where you sit in safe isolation, surrounded or separated from your neighbours by perspex walls uh, with the performance uh, stage in front of you and everybody in the round. You can visit theatreworks.org.au for booking details uh, to see the gospel according to Jesus, Queen of Heaven. Opening tomorrow from the 30th of April, running through to the 8th of May at TheatreWorks, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on the program and chookers for the thank season. Thank you. Thanks so much, Richard. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. My next guest joins me on the line. Hayden Tanazzi is a Sydney-based director who uh, joins us to talk about this genuine moment at La Mama as part of Midsummer. And as always, when I talk about Midsummer, a brief disclaimer, yes, I'm the volunteer chair of the Committee of Management at the Theatre and I don't benefit financially from promoting Midsummer shows. But La Mama is clearly dear to my heart. So uh, I'm looking forward to learning more about this genuine moment. It's a rock-bottom production. Hayden, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this work has previously been staged in Sydney, and I read a, a very positive review about it, but uh, it will probably be new to Melbourne audiences, as indeed will the company Rock Bottom Productions. Tell us a little bit more about this genuine moment. What's the elevator pitch? Yeah, I guess the elevator pitch for genuine moment is uh, Jake first approached me with this script and really intrigued me with the premise, which is that you can often be a lot more honest and um, truthful to others and to strangers uh, in particular than you can to your family and friends. So he pitched it to me as sort of two guys wake up next to each other the morning after an apparent one-night stand, and they just have a conversation where they find the freedoms uh, and truth about themselves in that moment. Um, And so it's a really interesting play that plays with technology um, and what it means to find yourself uh, in this scenario. Now, that notion of the morning after is certainly rich and ripe for uh, dramatic exploration, partially because of what people have revealed to one another physically uh, and also and emotionally, perhaps, uh, in a one-night stand. Uh, 
and certainly it's been explored in film that, uh, and, uh, and elsewhere, the notion of kind of how you choose to open up or not to, to that person, uh, particularly if you invite them to stay for an hour or two rather than kicking them out the door the next day. Exactly. I think there's something really uh, interesting just about starting a play with two men in their underwear, already physically revealed pretty much all of themselves. And so what else do they have to reveal? And then we sort of go on that journey with them about how they sort of uh, cover up different parts of their life, their body um, and their personality, and then how that all starts to peel back um, and they begin to understand different things about each other and then ultimately uh, understand a lot about themselves by the end of the play. The, the fact that it's uh, there are elements of humour, elements of drama, it feels like there's plenty of potential in a script like this to play with mood, but also play with expectation perhaps as well. The audience might be expecting, I don't know, if, if a play begins with two uh, almost naked men, they might be ex- uh, expecting something a bit raunchy, but it feels like this is a work that's going more for the emotional jugular. Yeah, it's really interesting because we sort of... The- first sort of half of the play really just sits in that funny comedy awkward waking up next to a stranger we laugh about all the different aspects of that and then it sort of just comes out of nowhere where it takes this turn into what I like to call it like a it's sort of like a contemporary coming of age story and so it takes a sort of sharp left turn into the second act of it all and it really just sort of hits this really beautiful emotional and vulnerable place so yeah it's really I think you set the audience up for this great, fun, potentially a little bit sexy time, and then it just becomes this honest conversation to the audience. It also uh, intrigues me because the, I guess, intimacy between men is still uh, sometimes a a fraught area. Uh, Certainly men themselves aren't necessarily great historically and traditionally at at opening up emotionally. So watching two two actors creating this fictional scenario in, in which men get to kind of bear themselves physically and emotionally in front of one another and in front of the audience is also still uh, relatively fresh ground to explore in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was having this conversation with Jake, uh, who is a queer playwright the other day, and we were just saying how important it is in our own queer journeys about these moments and just finding that freedom and finding that vulnerability. Like I think every queer man that I know of has had that sort of interaction, whether in a one-night ten scenario or just sort of maybe at a bar talking with another queer um, stranger. But, yeah, there's a real vulnerability and intimacy, but also freedom in those moments to really sort of learn and take on advice and discover who you are as a queer person. Because I guess we don't really get that conversation or that training uh, growing up uh, in our education systems. We don't get to learn these little things about what it means to be queer. So it's a really cool scenario to present a play that just sort of puts us in that world and takes us on that journey with two very different characters. It's been staged, as we mentioned earlier, in Sydney. How much has it evolved since, what, was it the old 505, is that right? Yeah, the old 505 in Sydney. So how much um, has it evolved since that that kind of uh, premiere production? Yeah, like uh, quite a bit, I would say. I mean, the the premise and the the script has remained... Uh, largely the same, but, you know, during COVID, we were able to really sit back and go, what is this piece about? Like, take on some uh, feedback from that first season. And um, for the audiences that come and see it, there's, um, throughout the show, the two characters' mobile phones are projected onto the back wall. Um, and so we get to really see this dichotomy 
between how they're interacting with people outside of this room and how they're interacting with each other inside the room. So a lot of that tech content behind them, we've been able to really explore and mine for um, its full potential, which maybe we didn't get to do in the first season. Um, so, yeah, when you uh, come and see it, it's, it's got this really cool digital world attached to it, um, and that's where a lot of the changes have taken place um, since that first season. And you've also uh, had to recast the performers, I believe. Yes, yes. We, um, we wanted to bring it down and uh, make sure we injected it with fresh Melbourne talent. So we put a call out. Um, Tom Dawson, who did the first season, actually from, uh, is from Melbourne. So we kept him on board. And then we put a call out for the other character and came across the brilliant Eli Swindles, who uh, is a great... Uh, Brisbane, uh, originally from Brisbane, is now located in Melbourne. And um, he's brought this really fresh uh, and interesting and different take to this character and to this role. So it's been really cool to rediscover the show with Eli and Tom and this new relationship on stage. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Hayden Tanazzi, who is the director of this genuine moment, which is being presented at the La Mama Courthouse of as part of Melbourne's Midsummer Festival, the queer cultural festival that's on now until the 5th of May, I think, off the top of my head. Uh, now, Hayden, I was looking at uh, your background. You also direct musical theatre as well as traditional theatre. How does uh, directing a musical differ from directing a more traditional theatre production like This Genuine Moment? Yeah, there's, I guess, huge differences. I mean... The one thing that I think is common between the two of them is this element of visuality. And I really, uh, I love directing things uh, in a very visual way, using lighting and all the production elements to their full potential. But I guess there's just so much to juggle in musical theatre. You've got dance, you've got singing, you've got scripts, um, and you've got just so many, usually a lot larger cast. One of my first productions that I did uh, of a musical was Parade, and I had a cast of 50 on stage. So going from a cast and managing a cast of 50 in a rehearsal room to managing two actors is a very different ball game. Um, but they both come with a like, unique set of challenges, which is what I enjoy and why I jump between the two forms. And presumably they both also require the ability to f- uh, finesse and focus the emotional truth of the work, regardless of whether that truth is being sung or spoken. Yeah, well, that's what I love about musical theatre is because I think when really done right, you know, the, the traditional idea behind a musical and, and singing is that a scene gets to a point where it can no longer be uh, explored emotionally that the character has to sing about it. It reaches a climax that the character then has to go and explore it in song. And so I just love that transition in a musical from a scene going into the song and discovering what that emotion and arc is with an actor. Um, and it's the same with um, this genuine moment. Like, Jace has written these beautiful monologues in the second half of the show that I almost treat like songs in a way, and we really start to get into that emotional depth with the characters, moving away from that awkward comedy of waking up next to a stranger with a hookup, and, yeah, it going into that sort of the personal... Um, and the character's psyche a bit more. So it's a really cool process. Look, as a final question uh, before I let you go, Hayden, obviously Rock Bottom Productions, you're an independent Sydney theatre company. Uh, there's not necessarily a, as much cultural exchange in the independent theatre scene between Sydney and Melbourne as certainly as I would like there to be. The the, yeah. the individual cities kind of uh, arts ecologies are fairly self-contained in that regard, partially because 
as we all know, touring anything is a challenge, uh, particularly if yeah. it's an independent theatre work staged on the smell of an oily rag. Any kind of concerns about bringing the, the show to Melbourne or are you hoping that the Melbourne audiences will embrace the work because of its themes and what it's about? Yeah, I think because the show is, you know, it, it is a queer work, but at the end of the day, it's just about confronting yourself and be, being honest to yourself. So we've really approached this work in saying that it is accessible to almost, like, everyone. It should really be accessible to everyone, um, whether you're queer, straight, or, uh, you know. So we really thought, um, bring it to Melbourne. We wanted to find uh, the authenticity. We wanted to adapt the piece a little bit to our Melbourne audience. But um, ultimately, the heart and the essence of the production has stayed the same. But I completely agree. I think there needs to be more exchange between Sydney and Melbourne. And that's what I'm hoping to do with Rock Bottom is... uh, sort of traverse the two cities and, you know, bring productions um, between the two cities because I think there's a lot of potential for that exchange and for productions to do that a bit more. If you want to see this genuine moment, uh, a rock-bottom production at La Mama Courthouse Theatre as part of Midsummer, uh, it's on now, pre- uh, kicked off last night, I believe. Yeah, I think it was last night. And running through until the 2nd of May, so it's a fairly short season. Uh, you can book by going to lamama.com.au. AU tickets are 30 bucks or 20 concession. You can also call 9347 6948. That's 9347 6948 or lamama.com.au to book to see the rock bottom productions this genuine moment at La Mama for Midsummer, directed by Hayden Tanazi. Hayden, thank you so much for joining us and chookers for the season. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.